Welcome to yet another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests will discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Tom, we have a great show tonight. Yes, Today. we do. Our guest is PhD ethicist Dr. Elliot Bedford. He's been with us before. He'll be wonderful again this show. He's from the St. Vincent Hospital and Ascension Health System in Indianapolis, Indiana. And he's going to be helping us to discuss some of Chris's uh, real-life cases from practice. And in order to kick off the show and prep all of you listeners and us co-hosts for the interview, Chris has some rather fascinating medical news articles to discuss. Yes, before we get to Professor Bedford, let's look first <laughs> uh, at an article from the journal Public Discourse, which is an interesting title in itself. And it's the journal of the Witherspoon Institute. It's an independent research center that hopes to advance public understanding of moral issues. And the article is entitled, Do Women Regret Giving Birth?, when their baby is doomed to die. I mean, when I saw that article, it immediately leapt out at me. And the authors look at a series of studies. So this is an article about articles, which is kind of an interesting <laughs> format. Yes. Um, and it looked at uh, 2018 articles from a couple of big journals, if you're in the know, the Journal of Clinical Ethics, the Journal of Prenatal and Perinatal Psychology and Health, wow. uh, the Journal of Obstetric and Gynecologic Neonatal Nursing, and some others. And so the situation that these articles examined were when pregnant women are told that their baby has a lethal fetal diagnosis. Now, this term in itself is pretty controversial because it's often said your baby has a diagnosis that's incompatible with life. Yet they're alive at the time they're given it. Very odd. And one could rightfully argue, we all suffer from this very same diagnosis, don't we? Yes, we do. <laughs> yeah, my patron saint, St. Thomas More, when he was on uh, the ox cart being pulled off to his execution, said to somebody, we're all on an ox cart, mine's just getting there faster. <laughs> <laughs> so that's exactly what these studies were looking at. Women that are told this, and then some women will choose to continue their pregnancy and participate in what now is called perinatal hospice. That is to say, continuing caring for and loving the baby and letting this take its course naturally. Might some of these babies die before birth? Yes. Okay. In general, the diagnosis would suggest that the baby may die uh, up to before birth or shortly thereafter. Okay. And of course, shortly thereafter, it can be very widely defined. And then, of course, another set of mothers will often uh, choose and, as we read more, uh, are encouraged to terminate the pregnancy because, after all, isn't that the more humane thing to do? Otherwise, a direct abortion. Exactly. It's better for the mother. It's better for the baby. We're going to eliminate suffering by causing premature death. Uh, so what's interesting is these researchers found what they call an absent of absence of regret in 98% of participants who chose to continue their pregnancy. And I sort of had a gut feeling from my own practice that mm -hmm. that would be the answer, but I was astonished to see the number that high. And assuming that this is a, oh, a, a random or a, a, a population that is representative of the whole, you would expect there to be a number of women who would favor abortion in certain circumstances, wouldn't you? Yes. I mean, interestingly, these women that chose to continue their pregnancy, they reported enhanced relationship with the baby, a, a real sense of getting to know the baby after the diagnosis, uh, better relationships uh, with their family despite giving birth to babies with these, uh, in many cases, terrible diagnoses. And equally interestingly, the abortion elected group was just the opposite. Wow. They struggled with depression. They struggled with a sense of regret uh, and having been misled. So interestingly, even though it may be somewhat counterintuitive to our listeners and to some of our colleagues in medicine, women when posed, uh, when given the opportunity and explained the option, uh, and choose to continue carrying their pregnancy, despite these terrible diagnoses, actually are much, much happier. And as the study says, have a complete absence of regret. So now you can even tell your patients in this horrible situation, you have twice the chance to be happy <laughs> if you carry this baby. Absolutely. I mean, scientifically, that's we've proven that. And I can think of a few patients that I've cared for over the years that have said things like, 
you know, I get to love my baby, but I don't know how long this child is going to live, just like I didn't know how long my other child was going to live, who didn't have the diagnosis. Uh, and I've heard patients say things like, we're taking our baby to Disneyland. We're doing, <laughs> <laughs> we're doing all of these things with our baby. We're just doing it before the baby comes out. Yes, very good. Uh, and, that, and they report bonding. And, you know, one of the amazing things about women uh, as their ability to be moms. Uh, and they can be phenomenal mothers, even when the baby's inside them, and especially when the baby has a tough diagnosis like this. Pretty amazing, don't that's, you think? That's beautiful, though. Thanks for bringing that up. I learned something. You know, this whole idea has really given birth, pun intended, our, our. to this specialty known as perinatal hospice. And in most cities of size around the country, there are perinatal hospice resources available to people that, that, that moms and dads and families can get plugged into, learn more about approaching a devastating pregnancy uh, like this. And let me give you a couple of websites to maybe check out, and we'll put these on our Facebook page. Great. Uh, the first one is perinatalhospice.org, P-E-R-I-N-A-T-A-L. H-O-S-P-I-C-E dot O-R-G. That's a great website that really can take you to some terrific resources. Another one is called CarryingToTerm.org, a terrific website. And then finally, one of the greatest books I think I've ever read, a patient gave it to me a couple of years ago, and it's called A Gift of Time, Continuing Your Pregnancy When Your Baby's Life is Expected to Be Brief. Uh, and it's by Amy Kubelbeck. And Deborah Davis, both PhDs. It's available on Amazon or your favorite bookseller. It is a great read. If you know someone that's affected by this condition, you really want to do something meaningful, get them a copy of this book. Uh, and then one last study that I think is really interesting that I'll point out is from May of 2011. Uh, and this is for all of our listeners who might know someone who's dealing with loss of a pregnancy or of a newborn. Uh, and it came from the, from the journal Birth issues in perinatal care, and it looked at the importance of affirming motherhood of women whose pregnancies are affected uh, by fetal anomalies. And they found that when our colleagues, Tom, health professionals, affirmed the status of mothers and affirmed the values of the babies involved and the significance of their losses, uh, they were perceived much more positively and the mothers reported much higher satisfaction scores in dealing with this devastation. Can you describe what some of those interactions would have been like or where they would have occurred? Yeah, you know, I think one of the most important things that healthcare workers, whether they're physicians or nurses or others, can say to a woman who's going through a loss is to say, I'm sorry for your loss. You're losing a child, and I know that that has to hurt, and it should hurt. You're losing a child. Because the world wants to say to these women, uh, it'll be fine. You're young. You'll have more babies. You can get pregnant a lot more. <laughs> and that's absolutely the worst, worst thing, thing to yes. say. Uh, but to validate you're a mother, you're, uh, you're losing a child, and you're experiencing that in a way only a mother can. And the best way to deal with that is to just validate that and say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for your pain. I think that's an incredibly practical uh, approach that you've just given to our listeners to use with even their friends and family members because we often don't know what to say in those situations and for some crazy reason we look to the future instead of dealing with the present like yeah, you just I mean, showed us we say it hurts and your your pain is very very real and i'm sorry now it's time for our medical trivia question of the day and this is a complicated one <laughs> it is uh, but the answer is very brief if you know what it is <laughs> and since we're dealing with an ethicist i had to find in my great large piggy bank of ethics in medicine questions i found this one one of the first hospital medical ethics committees formed way back in the last millennium in 1962 in seattle it was dubbed by many in the media, the God, God Committee. Committee. Yes. And it was pilloried on the front page of the New York Times. So they really made it. For what new life-saving but very limited medical treatment did members of the God Committee choose patients to receive this life-saving treatment? So you imagine there is this new treatment available. It actually saved and continues to save lives. But only a minuscule proportion of people with a certain medical problem 
got access to it. So this committee had to pick people who were allowed to use this treatment. So My there, question is, what was the treatment? Absolutely. So there you've heard it, the medical trivia for today. We'll be back after the break. You're listening to Dr. Doctor. Welcome back to our guest on today's episode of Dr. Doctor. We have with us on the line today, Elliot Bedford, Ph.D., since 2014, he served as Director of Ethics Integration for Ascension St. Vincent in both Central and Southern Indiana. In 2008 and 9, he received a Bachelor and Master of Arts in Philosophy from Franciscan University of Steubenville in Steubenville, Ohio. He's also completed a Master of Arts in Theology from Aquinas Institute of Theology in St. Louis. In 2012, he obtained a Doctorate in Health Care Ethics, Catholic Tradition from St. Louis University. Elliot Bedford, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Thank you very much, Tom. It's a pleasure, as always, to be here. To, to set the stage for some of these cases of Chris's we're going to discuss, I want to start with some general ethics principles. And there was a quote that one of our previous guests, who is an internist but also is kind of a, an ethics integration person uh, in his institution in Iowa, he said that every physician-patient encounter is a moral encounter because the patient is asking from his physician not only his knowledge but his whole life experience, his advice, and of course this is colored by his worldview. Do you think that what that doctor says is correct or not, and why? Oh, absolutely. I would agree with that sentiment. Um, there's a famous philosopher or a ethicist among my discipline who named Jack Gallagher who said, there's no ethics-free zones. And ah. it's basically expressing the same principle of any time that you are making a choice, a free choice, whether it's deliberating over goals of care or which treatment, which treatment interventions you want to apply, there's a moral dimension to those choices, whether you're you know, improving your character or becoming you know, more, what we'd say in moral philosophy, is vicious or yeah. vice-ridden. Um, so each little choice that we make either builds up our character or harms it in some way. So that's definitely the expression that uh, is being articulated there, and I would f fully agree with it. But it's interesting, in the patient-physician encounter in its most basic way, the patients just aren't asking us for data that they might get from Google Doc, right? They're asking us right. to interpret data, and we interpret data as a function of our, our biases, our our principles, our sense of, uh, of the world view. And I don't think that should be shocking. I, I'm thinking of a patient who got angry with me once and, and self-referred to another specialist and said, well, I wanted to get a non-Catholic view. <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> on the one hand, I thought, I'm, that's flattering because you think I'm incapable of thinking outside of the teachings <laughs> of the church. And then on the other hand, I thought, now, wait a second, I can tell you which antibiotic to use. Uh, and right. it doesn't, it, it's not a Catholic antibiotic, <laughs> but we really do bring all of that with us to every patient encounter, don't we? You, we, you do. And I think one of the ways that, um, medicine could be going right now is increasingly viewing physicians as technicians, mm -hmm. or yes. I like to say it as a vending machine. Yes. So, right. I go as a customer to receive whatever type of service that I want, I give the money and the information and I'm able to you know, make my selection. But in reality, we want and need human interaction. And I always hear this expressed in a, in a real simple way of when a physician is asked by a patient, well, what would you do, doc, if you were in my situation, <laughs> right? right? Yeah. That cuts right to the heart of things. Of, You're a human being too. I want to know your perspective on it. Well, what are the things your, that... One of the things that you do, Elliot, so well as an ethicist is you have this incredible vocabulary that a lot of us don't have. And I know by the end of our session tonight, we're going <laughs> we're gonna to have a better vocabulary. But is there really a difference between the terms ethical and moral? Help us with that. So if you want to be you know, super technical, then yes, there would be a difference. Colloquially, though, people use them interchangeably. Mm -hmm. So uh, don't feel... Like you're miss, missing something <laughs> if uh, if you uh, you know use them interchangeably, but really ethics is more about kind of a scientific and organized, systematic way of thinking about rules or principles. Like if you say I have an ethical system of I'm 
uh, that's very much focused on duty. Well, that's kind of your your philosophy um, of why, how you make decisions about what's right or wrong. Oh, Morality nice. the, and, and ethics more comes from the Greek root of ethos. Morality is more from the Latin side of things, and it talks about things like moral values and principles, like the idea that human beings have intrinsic worth, you know, that we hear in our Catholic tradition, that's a moral value. And then we make decisions off of that. So we can develop a moral philosophy off of the idea that we have intrinsic value made in the image and likeness of God. So, like I said, there is a technical difference and morals, I would say, more applies to values and character, whereas ethics is more about structured ways of thinking. Okay, that's that's helpful. Now, I'd like to get into some a little nitty-gritty of what we are looking when we're evaluating an ethics case. When I was in medical school, and it was a secular medical school, we were given four criteria to make ethical decisions. And I'm curious if these criteria blend with, are opposed to, or incomplete compared to Catholic criteria. And they are, number one, a respect for autonomy. That is, we're not telling patients what to do. Two, non-maleficence, which means we're not going to harm anybody. Number three, beneficence, which means we're going to do good for somebody. And number four, justice, we're, we're being fair. So are those part of Catholic ethics? Is it complete? How would you answer that? I would say that those are attempts at a kind of common language across different moral worldviews. And when you really look at the Catholic moral tradition— there are some incompatibilities with at least how those are commonly expressed in secular bioethics. And the really easy example is, go back to the vision of the human person that I just articulated. We're creating the image and likeness of God. That's a very clear, uh, we call it anthropological uh, vision from the Catholic moral uh, viewpoint, meaning you can intentionally kill innocent human life, and you ought to help it flourish, right? Food, water, nutrition, clothing, education, these are things that the Catholic moral tradition says human beings have a right to. So that means that there's limits based on that vision of human dignity to things like people's autonomy, right? So people don't have the free ability to kill, um, for instance, in cases of direct abortion. So that's a limit on autonomy, where if you go to a secular bioethics where autonomy facilitation is kind of the end-all, be-all, it says that a woman can have a right to uh, directly terminate her pregnancy, even though that might cause um, harm to the, well, they'd call it potential life. But it so, feels, so there it, it, are big differences, I would, I would argue, yeah, even though I mean, we use the same language. That's sort of consistent with sort of certainly what we've experienced interviewing people on our show. Uh, I'm thinking of the time when uh, we were talking to people from the March for Life. Uh, this idea that personal autonomy is the ultimate principle that feels relatively new. The idea that, you know, I've certainly been attacked in social media for saying that a woman's autonomy is limited to the degree to which she might destroy another human inside of her. And then people have said, well, how dare you limit a woman's autonomy? This idea that personal autonomy is the penultimate sort of goal, yet my autonomy is limited. I can't go punch my neighbor because <laughs> I don't like his music. That seems mm-hmm. to be messed up in, in current society. It, it certainly is, but that emphasis on autonomy is something that is not only kind of culturally dominant, but also you'll see it in um, secular medical ethics around our job as, as medical providers is ultimately to help facilitate and meet the autonomous needs of the patient who's before us. Mm. And, and that, that changes that changes kind of how you deal with patients. From, I say it would make you into a vending machine, essentially. Uh, Elliot, something about autonomy there just uh, strikes me as something I learned from uh, G.K. Chesterton, and that's on heresy. It seems like autonomy is a modern ethics heresy because he said a heresy was taking part of the truth and trying to make it the whole truth. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. And he's got a good way of 
Yes, he does. Really making well, things we want nice to, and concise. One more point before we get into the cases, and that is when you are on your ethics committee, what principles are you using to make decisions? And I'm sure it's more than just the way you and your fellow committee members feel about things. Certainly, certainly. Um, moral intuition is an important piece. So that's what when you say when you feel something. But the whole task that we have is to translate moral intuitions into moral reasoning. And the way we do that is looking at church teaching, Catholic moral tradition, uh, but also things like applicable laws and medical standards are all part and parcel of the um, resources that we lean on when we are evaluating any case. Um, So you have have to have good moral principles and moral teaching, but you also have to have good medical facts. Well, let's move on to some concrete cases. I think things get really fun when we do this, and Chris has a case that he wants to discuss. So uh, let me set this up uh, for our listeners and, of course, uh, for you, Professor Bedford, as well. This is a true case that I'm uh, sort of de-identifying and making a little more vague than it really was. But it's a mom who decides to have a cesarean birth. She's not our patient early on in the pregnancy, and by that I mean we don't know a lot about her. So in the midst of the planning and uh, beginning the cesarean section, we're shocked to learn that she will not accept blood products of any kind based on religious reasons. So we move on, we perform the cesarean section. Ah, wouldn't you know, there's a complication during the surgery in which the mom begins to lose a large volume of blood. And over the next several hours, she develops a very serious complication that we call DIC, or the fancy uh, word is disseminated intravascular coagulopathy. It can be a very deadly condition in the best of situations uh, where the body starts to use up all of the blood clotting factors in a very rapid fashion. Uh, but without the use of replacement blood products like platelets and clotting factors and red blood cells, it's frequently, if not uniformly, fatal. So this misfortunate patient uh, developed this complication, and because of her religious position, she was in complete refusal of all blood products. So the patient and all of her family were very clear to me in that they would not accept blood products regardless of the outcome, but they were also very clear to me in their desire for me to save their daughter's life. But I had to do it without using blood products. So sadly, uh, the patient's status deteriorated rapidly throughout uh, the day and night. Uh, And of course, we repeatedly confirmed the family's refusal of blood products. You know, every time a new physician would get involved in the case, they would think, well, maybe they'll be the one to convince the family uh, that this is is not a good idea. Uh, But despite several people's best efforts, um, the patient died from complications of this severe anemia. So my questions for you are, what are the physician's obligations in a case like this from an ethical perspective? Right. Well, there's a couple that I'd outline here. And the first and foremost that we have to do is focus on informed decision-making. So that applies both ways. So you as the patient or as the physician informing the patient of all the potential risks and complications of moving forward with, uh, you know, delivery and being pregnant and all those types of things. Um, and then also with cesarean section, uh, describing, you know, it's a fairly routine process that we do now, uh, especially in the United States, but it's still major surgery. Um, sure. And they need to know all of the details there. So that's the other piece. Um, responsibility of the patient is the other part that I'd like to focus on is actually um, to be a good patient, you really need to um, hold up your end of the bargain and tell your provider all relevant facts, um, you know, moral positions uh, and complicating factors. And something like I'm going to refuse blood products because of my religious beliefs is definitely something that is better known upfront rather than kind of just sprung on you on the moment so that you can develop a plan of yeah develop a plan of care uh, accordingly and and in something like that you have to recognize the limitations that you as a provider have i think that's a responsibility of saying i may want to am i comfortable or do i feel i'd be morally compromised 
if I were to go into the cesarean section and the patient were to, you know, decompensate and I couldn't be able to intervene, is that something that I'm going to be able to sit through? Um, that's a point of discernment. And if you couldn't do that, then it might be saying, I don't know if I'm the appropriate person to do uh-huh. Yeah, good. That's an excellent point. Yeah. So if we were to list them, what would you say are the ethical principles of note in a case like this? Certainly it feels like patient autonomy is one of them. Well, I'd characterize it as, um, and here's the way you can distinguish autonomy from the way it'd be articulated in a more fully Catholic uh, viewpoint of freedom, right? Mm -hmm. Human freedom. The ability to make choices, even though we might necessarily say that the you know it's it's based on an erroneous belief, but the idea that they are able to make an informed decision based on their you know evaluation of all of the burdens and benefits of any particular medical intervention. So, obviously, the Jehovah's Witness um, uh, faith people there have really thought this through. Uh, in terms of their refusal of blood products, right? So there's, that's a well-established thing that mm. people know widely. And the fact that, oh, hey, this person is adhering to that, I think that there is also a dimension in which we're saying, I'm respecting your human freedom to be able to ev- make those evaluations and make that choice. But at the same time, you have to respect my freedom to be able to say, I, I don't think this is good medicine, I don't think I'm going to be able to participate, or I do, it might be really hard, but um, uh, you know, I still, I still think we can work together. Now, so human you know, freedom is definitely where I'd want to focus. It sounds a little, it sounds a little contrived, but you know, what's wrong with forcing a life-saving treatment on a patient in this situation? I mean, we value life. Um, this is a life that's going to be lost. I'm just going to step in and say, I'm sorry, but you know, the need to protect life trumps your desire for autonomy and freedom. And Chris, as a, uh, a point of medical fact, what are the odds that if she were treated with the blood products, fresh frozen plasma, whatever, that she would have survived? Well, I mean, that's a good question. It, it muddies the water a little in the sense that uh, early on in the process, the odds were really pretty good. Okay. Later on in the process, it becomes you know, more of a self but But say as soon as you knew that DIC was happening, yeah, I if think, you treated... I think most surgeons would agree the odds are really pretty good that you can survive Like 90%, that. 95? High. I would say high. Maybe not quite that high, but high. Okay, thanks. Go ahead, Elliot. So I think that it boils down to... Well, first you want to make a distinction, especially in Jehovah's Witness case, around patients making decisions for themselves and patients making decisions for uh, pediatric patients. Ah, yes, a child, sure. The state has, um, and I'm talking um, and seeing a a lot of cases with regards to peds, the state has a compelling interest in intervening and saying that you can't refuse on behalf of a a pediatric patient refusal of blood, blood products. But as a, you know, fully competent and capacitated adult, you can make that decision for yourself. So that's, a, that's the state recognizing this, the dimension of human freedom and evaluation. And I think that that really resonates with how uh, the church's perspective on what we'd call proportionate or disproportionate means of uh, preserving your life, where the patient has the ability to evaluate all means of preserving their life. And if they think that they're excessively burdensome and not sufficiently beneficial, as it seems to be in this case for the Jehovah's Witness, then they can refuse, mm-hmm. even if that's based on an erroneous uh, evaluation of an interpretation of Scripture um, that uh, you know happens to come about from the, that dimension of the faith. Yeah, right. We still would be okay respecting that. Isn't that on interesting? A le- in a, in a yeah. bizarre sort of way, it's sort of interesting. It's okay to passively cause one's own death by declining a treatment, a therapy, it's not okay to actively cause one death by, say, taking too much of of a medication like morphine or something. Uh, The result is the same, but the decision process is completely different, isn't it? Well, it's, it's, again, that evaluation of the burdens and benefits of the the means of preserving your life. Here, they take very, very seriously the the ramifications of accepting blood products. Mm. 
very, very serious. It's, it's either condemnation or you're obliterated or it's very, very serious. So they're saying, all things being equal, I'm not, I don't want to go down that path. And in, on a practical level, I'd have to ask you as a physician to say, what are, the, what are you willing to do? Are you willing to commit assault to uh, uh, you know, see this thing through? Because those are, you know, practical consequences that you'd have to deal with as well. Sure. It gets more complicated when we're talking about refusal of C-section for, you know, fetal indications. Sure. All those type of um, questions that you as a physician have to ask. What am I willing to do? What lines am I willing to draw and cross? Um, and I think that that's how it all balances out. This has been fascinating. We have another case to discuss, but we're going to give Elliot a breather, take a break here, and we'll be back soon on Dr. Doctor. Welcome back on Dr. Doctor as we continue to discuss some ethics cases from the life of Dr. Chris Stroud, obstetrician-gynecologist, with Elliot Bedford, noted Indiana-based ethicist. And Elliot, Chris has another case to describe. So if I didn't kill you Mm -hmm. in my last case, I'll go after you uh, with this next one. I think listeners will find this one interesting. This is the case where a mom is pregnant uh, with a baby who has a lethal anomaly. I don't like that term, but it works. Uh, And we talked a little bit about some research at the top of the show on this topic. Um, This mother transferred uh, to our practice late in the pregnancy, and we detected a very serious anomaly. We learned at about 29 weeks of her pregnancy that uh, the nature of this particular anomaly is such that the baby would be fine as long as it stays inside the mother, but really the moment it's born represents the moment of its death, uh, or shortly uh, thereafter, as soon as breathing uh, is required. So the mother reacted uh, in such a way as to say, I want this over. I want this nightmare over. You've told me my baby has no chance to live uh, after it's born, so I want to be uh, induced. I want my baby to be delivered right this minute, right now, at about 30 weeks of pregnancy. Uh, Now, for this case, our listeners have to know that Babies born at 30 weeks of pregnancy may, in fact, do just fine, but they may have considerable hardships because of being premature. And, of course, they could even die simply because they were born that prematurely. Uh, So here we have a mother saying, it doesn't matter. The outcome is going to be the same. My baby is going to perish immediately at birth. Why do you want me to suffer longer? I want this over uh, now. So, Elliot, what are the ethical principles that we need to call out uh, in a case like this? I think the first thing you look at is the dignity of the baby is a thing that really stands out in my mind as we need to keep that in mind. So we understand that even though they have this lethal anomaly, that they're still a child of God, made in the image and likeness of God, mm-hmm. and we don't want to treat them any morally differently be, uh, because they have this lethal anomaly. Uh, the second piece I'd look at is actually the suffering of the mother, right? This is a, mm-hmm. this is a devastating you know, acknowledgement, and people need to process those things, especially over time, because there's a huge sense of loss. And so what I think we do to help focus on both of those dimensions is talking about, especially with the mother, trying to find ways to help her grieving, uh, especially from a social dimension. So I know um, uh, in a perinatal palliative care type of setup, dealing with uh, finding social support groups, right, mm-hmm. of patients who've had a similar experience can do a great job of helping answer questions and and uh, what you don't want to... F- uh, what you want to avoid is making people feel alone, isolated, um, like the world is over. Um, those are things uh, that really just, you know, weigh on people's souls. And the idea of this is a person, and it's not that we just get over them, right? That's <laughs> not something that we want to we, we want to do. We don't just get on get over them and move on. You're always going to be a mother, because you already are. Um, and so we're going to try and make this the best experience that you can with the time you have left. And I think that 
some research that I had recently just saw. Um, I forget where exactly, but it looked at cases like this that said when um, researchers went out and asked mothers who had gone full term. Elliot, you're a, they, Elliot, we're laughing because uh, you have no way of knowing this, but we just talked about that research before you joined us on the show. <laughs> and you're exactly oh. right. We were both thinking the same uh, the same thing there, that it's been shown empirically that these moms uh, generally are absent of regret uh, oh, yeah, when they make huge that decision. Numbers, 95%. Yeah, they we, say I would, I would, I wouldn't change anything. Yeah, we set and, you up there uh, by not telling you that. Sorry, but you know, some well, would good. say, you know, some would say, "Come on, don't be academic about this. The outcome is going to be the same. This child is going to die the moment it's born. What difference does it make if the child dies four weeks from now or four minutes from now? Uh, how do you reason reason through that kind of argument?" Well, like I said, just because somebody's going to die eventually doesn't mean you get to end their life and there's no moral difference. Yes, we're I all suffering that, from that condition, aren't we? <laughs> yes. yes, we all have that terminal condition. doesn't justify you um, bringing it about sooner. But I think that it misses the point around helping people heal and helping mm. people process. And invariably, I think that if you're able to address those concerns, which is allowed for in the interim, it's a lot easier to help process and grieve that loss while you still have the baby in utero from what I've seen experientially. Um, that, yeah, it does make a difference. Yeah. It really does make a difference if you're able to do that versus, okay, this just get this over with and, and uh, move on. So Elliot, That's if you were, if you were having this good. debate with a, uh, your non Catholic counterpart at a secular health system, would their arguments be different from yours, or would you, the two of you come to the same conclusion, do you think? No, I think that they would look at it in much more based on consequences and outcomes of saying the outcome's the same, so there's no moral difference. Hmm. I would say the means matter, and that's what we need to focus on. We know that the baby's going to die, but that doesn't justify us uh, ending its life early or disrespecting its life by... Um, dismissing it. It's interesting. Uh, Someone in this case said to me, well, you're a Catholic. You just care about the baby. You don't care about the mom. And my response was, no, I I see two lives here of equal value and dignity, and we can't ignore one uh, because of the other and vice versa. But it, it can be very difficult to articulate, especially when there's emotion involved, right? Certainly. Well, Certainly Elliot, thank uh, you. You've, you've done a great job, as always, reasoning, reasoning through these difficult cases uh, and keeping uh, Catholic teaching and the dignity of life at the forefront. It, it always makes me feel good to know that when we try to decide what to do, we try to always remember the dignity of every human life. And uh, we'll be Amen. back after this break and probably with a little more Elliot here on Dr. Doctor. So welcome back. You're listening to Dr. Doctor from the studios of Redeemer Radio. And as most of you loyal listeners know, it's time for the answer to the medical trivia question about the God Committee. Tom, do tell. Yes. So the God Committee got to decide in Seattle in 1962 which few patients could benefit from a new life-saving treatment. And what was this treatment that is widely used today? It's known as renal dialysis or kidney dialysis. To save people's lives whose kidneys were failing, the machine acts like an external kidney taking out the impurities, the toxins, whatever uh, you have that are in the blood and circling back good, healthy blood into the body. And now, this was the beginning. I mean, dialysis is so commonplace today. It it's is hard to imagine that just common. a few decades ago. You had to have a committee to decide who gets to use this technology. And, and that really brought about the need for ethics committees, which Elliot Bedford serves on and runs. But speaking of specific ethics, let's move on from the world of dialysis to a third case, and one that is all too common in Chris's world, that of ectopic pregnancy. Yeah, this is a, this is a common problem, sadly. And I think the issues that we're going to cover may surprise some of the listeners. So just by way of a quick biological review, 
an ectopic pregnancy uh, is when the embryo uh, is stuck in the fallopian tube. So fertilization happens way out in the end of the tube next door to the ovary. And then over the course of about 10 days, this embryo, we would call it a baby, has to float down the fallopian tube and then land in the uterus uh, to implant. Should the embryo become stuck in the tube along its journey, um, the embryo continues to grow. It's called an ectopic or a tubal pregnancy, uh, and it will rupture that tube, creating a medical emergency. So, Elliot, tell us, what is at stake here? So, well, it boils down to life for the mother, um, and uh, oftentimes fertility um, if life's not threatened. And it's pretty much uniformly lethal for the fetus embryo, especially at that stage, because you can't move it and reimplant it or anything like that. So it's it's a very, very serious matter. But I think what is what is really tough for serious Catholic patients who find themselves or their loved ones in this condition is in some cases we can demonstrate on ultrasound while it is a tubal pregnancy, the baby is alive. There is a heartbeat. And the baby's alive. Even though that's a minority situation, isn't it? That is less common. Yes. Now, as technology and ultrasound gets better and better, I feel like over my career, it's gotten it's gotten more common that we can see it. It is still by far a minority of situations. Okay. Yeah. So we have a live pregnancy in the tube. The tube maybe has not yet ruptured, but will. Uh, and we're forced with a couple of options. We can cut the tube out which uh, solves the problem from the mother's medical perspective. The other option is using a medication called methotrexate, and that's what we really wanted to educate listeners on, I think, tonight. Uh, Methotrexate uh, targets cells that are rapidly dividing or growing, like cells in an early pregnancy, and destroys those. So the methotrexate will destroy the pregnancy and thereby prevent the need for me to go in and cut the tube out to save the tube. So Elliot, if a family is trying to decide between surgical excision of a non-ruptured ectopic Mm -hmm. pregnancy and methotrexate, what are the ethical issues they need to consider? So we go back to the idea here of we ought not take directly take innocent human life. And the debate around how to deal with ectopic pregnancy from the church's perspective is one that's been going on for a long time. And in this debate, it's really important that we remember this principle called the principle of uh, double effect. Mm. Principle of double effect has four conditions. It says that anytime you do a single action that has two outcomes, one's good, so in this case, saving the mother's life, uh, and one's foreseeably bad, in this case, the baby would die, um, are, we use this kind of uh, rubric to figure out, is this a justifiable interaction? The first condition of principle of double effect is, is the thing that you're doing, the object, intrinsically problematic or intrinsically evil? Um, and if it is, then you can't do it because that you can never uh, do evil that good may come of it. So that's really the question that's at the heart of the debate for whether ectopic pregnancy, um, which mechanisms of uh, resolving it are okay. There's clear consensus around the salpingectomy, which is um, cutting the tube and removing it, because you're not directly killing the the fetus, you're removing the pathologically bonded tube and trophoblast, Mm. and foreseeing that the, the, the baby will die due to exsanguination and um, or, or um, loss of what's a trophoblast? Of, uh, <laughs> trophoblast is the precursor to the placenta that is what anchors the baby into either the uterus or to, in this case, the tube. fallopian tube. Thank you. Yes, and so, that's the most rapidly dividing cells that the methotrexate would uh, attack. And so that's where the debate is. Is methotrexate a direct attack on the fetus, Mm. or is it something else? Because from my understanding of the way that it works, it really just stops all cell growth, and it affects the trophoblast cells the most because they're the most active, Mm. Uh, because then they need to flush it out uh, because otherwise it'll have negative effects on the mother 
um, wholesale. So those are the, that's where the debate really sits at. And I think that people have differing opinions. Uh, and that's something that's interesting from the church's perspective, because there's no official pronouncement from the church's perspective on whether methotrexate is licit and uh, usable or not licit and uh, not usable. And consequently, that means that it's up to uh, individual clinicians and patients to evaluate and form their conscience on this matter and then make decisions based off of that. Yeah, you know, um, I've had patients say, if you can't demonstrate a live pregnancy, I'm fine with using methotrexate. But if you can demonstrate a live pregnancy, I'm not fine with it. Of course, the advantage from a reproductive standpoint is using the methotrexate, if successful, allows you to save a tube. You don't have to remove a tube. Right. So now when it's all said and done, if it works, and that's a big if, uh, the woman saves both of her tubes so her future reproductive chances are, are better. So um, under the same reasoning, could you take out the trophoblast physically, which also is going to have the embryo or baby with it? I mean, would that be the same reasoning under which you could use methotrexate? I suppose it is well, possible in some cases that the, the ectopic is at the very end of the tube and we can tease, if you will, uh, the pregnancy tissue out of the end of the tube and not have to remove the tube. That's very uncommon that you're fortunate to be able to do that. But I guess that would be almost the surgical equivalent of giving methotrexate. We're just removing the pregnancy. Because if you say you did do an abortion and just remove the embryo, would the trophoblast continue to grow or would it die? It would It would be impossible mechanically to remove one without moving the other. Okay. Yeah. We're talking it's that tiny and microscopic hit. From what I've, what I've seen um, in the literature, there is a problem around persistent trophoblast, especially yes. when you do a surgical intervention that means cutting open the tube and scooping out you know, the, 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 the fetus and the, um, or the embryo and the trophoblast. So you, you have stuff left over. And in those cases, what they do is they go in and they use like methotrexate to go in and finish you know, separating the bond. So I think that what's really significant from a moral philosophical perspective is really characterizing what is it that we're trying to do here? Are we trying to, um, you know, take a real easy example of if you've got a, uh, a fetus that's, um, you know, a couple weeks old here and you go in and you inject potassium chloride into this this baby what will happen there right that child's going to die you've you've killed the child right so you're going in and you're killing it as a means for removing it right correct that's that's a very clear example of violating the first principle of double or first condition of double effect where there's open question is is methotrexate more like that or is it more like uh, you're just simply trying to separate the bond between the trophoblast and the tube, as Dr. Stroud was just saying. Um, because really, from a physiologic standpoint, everything gets resolved once that separation occurs. Mm -hmm. Is that accurate? Yes, I think that's fair to say. Yeah. And of course, we're dealing, Even, with very, you can have, we're dealing with very small tissue that we have to just theorize. We can't actually look at it and see, which makes it just a little more complicated. Right. And so the, the idea of the, the fact that uh, an ectopic pregnancy in which no fetus is present is, is just as much dangerous as a one that has a sure. fetus present indicates to me that it's not the baby itself that, that's causing the threat. It's this bond. Correct. And if you're able to come up with some way to uh, you know, do that separation, um, then you'd be able to remove the threat. So I think that that's where there needs to be a lot more thinking and investigation um, and debate to, to clarify. But from the church's perspective, this is not something that's absolutely forbidden because basically we don't have enough information. You know, my, um, my I was taken to my knees uh, several years ago by a grandfather uh, of a patient of mine who had an ectopic pregnancy. And so as we're talking about the surgery before we go back to the operating room, he's becoming tearful. And so I stop uh, and I turn to him and I say, what's, 
what's wrong? What, what are you thinking? And he said, I want to know who's going to baptize my grandchild. Uh, and he Ooh. looked at me and he said, you're a Catholic, right? So you'll do it. And, you know, I wanted, if I could have crawled into the floor, I would have, because I had completely missed this. It, it had completely passed me by. But I want to tell you, we, we cut the tube out with the pregnancy in it, and I stepped out of the operating room and met them in the hospital chapel. And the family and I baptized this, uh, this child of God, and it was the greatest, one of the greatest things that I think has happened to me uh, as a physician. So leave it to a faithful grandfather uh, to bring we physicians to our knees sometimes. Well, Elliot, you've done a great job helping us think through some really complicated things, as we knew you would. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and, uh, and your vast knowledge of ethical principles. I am glad there are people like you in the world, Elliot. Thanks for being with us. I appreciate Go ahead. Appreciate the opportunity to have a conversation with you all, and I appreciate uh, your listeners as well. Well, Elliot and listeners, thanks for being part of and listening in on another episode of Dr. Doctor. We are the official radio program and podcast for the Catholic Medical Association, brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio in Little Fort Wayne, Indiana. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Invite them to listen on iTunes or Google Play Podcasts. Be sure to tune in next week uh, for your appointment with Dr. Doctor, where we'll be discussing physician burnout what it means for you with Columbus, Ohio obstetrician-gynecologist, Dr. Mike Parker. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your question to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at RedeemerRadio.com doctor where you can also find all our past episodes. Keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app or by following us on Facebook at Dr. Doctor Show.